There is a very famous Zen koan in Rinzai Zen Buddhism. They give people all these kind of paradoxical riddles which are meant to uh, challenge the rational way we interpret life and uh, open the mind to uh, solutions that are beyond the strict limitations of the <coughs> rational, uh, logical, left hemispheric, uh, problem-solving mind. And one of the famous Cohen's that uh, I'm going to be sort of using as a frame for tonight's talk is the one that goes, if you see the Buddha on the road, kill him. Sounds like a really mean thing to do, right? Poor Buddha walking on the road. Why would you want to do such a thing? So uh, I'm going <clears> to <throat> leave that there for a while, and then I will circle back to it after I've introduced some ideas that hopefully will be worth reflecting on. And then when we return to the koan, maybe we'll have a interpretation of it that will be... Uh, uh, worthwhile, or at least in some way thought-provoking. So putting that aside, all human beings, according to two famous psychologists, Heinz Kohat and Ernst Wolf, Ernest Wolf, sorry, um, who wrote a series of papers in the 1970s that were very influential in uh, developmental psychology, proposed that people need three things to wind up with a healthy uh, self, a healthy psych psychology in adult life. The first is they need to have experienced something called modeling, which was we need to have had a caregiver who um, po posits a positive example of how to succeed in the world, how to get one's needs met, how to, uh, how to uh, confidently pursue goals, so a figure that the child can look up to and mimic and copy that shows the child how to survive and uh, uh, move through life and, and uh, how to uh, establish boundaries and all the things that we need to do to have some form of uh, achievement in the world. It's kind of an authority figure. And this model for the child makes the child feel safe. The child turns to this model for a sense of security during times of stress. The child rallies around this, this positive example. The second need counterbalances that. It's companionship. The child also needs an adult who will be a friend, someone who will help the child move through the world with a sense of uh, twinship, companionship. Um, and this friendship that the child receives from an adult shows the child the value and the benefits of being part of a group. So where is the model parent or the parent who's showing, who's modeling secure, security in the world shows the child how to be self-reliant. The companion role of the parent shows the child how to ask for help from others and rely on other people and feel confident in groups and tribal gatherings. So they're, they balance each other out. We need both a model, someone who models how to get their needs met uh, on their own, and someone who also shows us how to rely on other people. 
But the third quality that we all need in early developmental life to succeed in life and wind up with a healthy uh, psyche is empathy or mirroring. And that is when we have an emotional state, um, the child actually connects with the parent or the caregiver through emotions. Emotions are actually the signals or the messages that in our pre-verbal, pre-linguistic life we use to connect with our caregivers. We cry, we shout, we kick, we stomp, we throw food, we uh, laugh. All of these emotional states are actually uh, messages to the caregiver saying uh, some, something that's happened that affects our survival and we're seeking attention. So empathy is when the parent stops what they're doing or the caregiver or the adult stops what they're doing, the teacher, and turns to the child and one gives the child what's known as attunement, which is makes eye contact with the child. The second thing is the caregiver then sees the child's emotion and subtly mimics back, reflects back the emotion that the child is expressing. So if the child is shaking or sad, the parent might give a concerned, sad look. And then finally the parent will do what's known as marking. They will smile and show the child that they're okay, that everything's going to be okay. So the, ch the parent first reflects the emotion and then soothes the emotion. If this goes well, this is the fundamental linkage that secures relationships in our first three years of life. This is the dominant experience that will allow us to have intimate relationships in our life. This will set the pattern for what's known as co-regulation. Human beings are pack animals that need to connect with each other to regulate our, their emotions. If you want to drive someone stark raving mad, there's a very simple trick that the US Army and intelligence services do all the time. You put them into solitary confinement and they will go stark raving mad very quickly because human beings without interaction with other people where they can make eye contact and have their emotions seen and have their feelings be understood, lose it. Their emotions become progressively dysregulated and off the map. So we all, for the entirety of our lives, need empathy, which is largely conveyed not through words, but through someone looking at us and mirroring our emotions non-verbally through facial expressions. This is, by the way, why um, spending all of our lives texting can be so frustrating and uh, essentially create feelings of deep isolation and loneliness because when someone answers you by text you are not getting any of your emotional needs met. You only get that through eye contact, through body language, through seeing someone else reflect back your emotions. So the good enough parents, as Winnicott called it, knows how to mirror back the child's emotions. The child <laughs> expresses frustration or boredom or antsiness or any emotional state. The, ch the parent sees it, stops what they're doing, mirrors it back and the child feels seen. Of course, these emotions are largely embodied. They're physical. They're not thought. 
They're not cognitive. They're not yet in language. Our emotions are somatic, physiological, felt states of being. So the child that doesn't have parents that reliably mirror and regulate their emotions winds up with these roiling, powerful, physiological states that are unregulated. The child feels alone with its body and its body is expressing tumult. And uh, the child fear, experiences fear or loneliness as an overwhelming state in the body that's very, very uncomfortable. In our first three years of life, we are largely right hemispheric. The right hemisphere has multiple synaptic connections via the vagus nerve and the, the insula to the body. When we enter our verbal life, which will dominate our adult life, we move towards the left hemisphere, which is largely less aware of the body, has less synaptic connection. So when we're children, we feel our bodies much more acutely. We feel our emotions much more powerfully. We feel the body is this ocean of powerful currents pushing us about. When we uh, uh, don't get our needs met, it leads to a kind of feelings of, of physiological overwhelm, loneliness, and we develop certain strategies to get our needs met. We will essentially uh, develop defense mechanisms to repress our emotions when our parents have not been able to co-regulate us. Defense mechanisms essentially boil down to largely learning how to use fantasy, thought, um, all kinds of rationalization, uh, any kind of going up into the head and seeking refuge in imaginary inner movies or inner thoughts that protect us from feeling the body. That's what happens when the child begins to develop language. They use language and their ability to fantasize and create virtual realities as a way to escape their powerful emotions. Children will also, of course, perform for love desperately. If they see that their parents don't allow them to feel sad, they will repress their sadness and show or perform other emotions to get love. If as in my case, when I was a child, the parent is really abusive, incapable of uh, showing the child how to be with anger. Then the child will desperately try to replace anger to the, to the point where they will use heroin or other drugs in their adult life to completely numb away the experience of heroin because that emotion has been marked by the parents as this will lead you, this, you will get abandoned if you have this emotion. Whatever emotions our caregivers and the people around us do not mirror and do not co-regulate, those emotions become marked as unsafe. And if they are even shamed by the parent or rejected by the parent, then we will get rid of the emotion as quickly as we can, relying on a substance or a kind of addictive process behavior, such as food, shopping, 
cutting anything we can do to get rid of the emotion that was too painful to bear. Again, the child is so desperate for connection, that's what the child needs to survive. And if the parent says, when you're in this state, this state of sadness, you don't get connection, you don't get love, the child will learn to do anything but feel that emotion. So, this leads me to the idea uh, that all of us have in the back of our heads, which is somewhere out there, there's someone who's figured it out, some enlightened figure, some guru, some wise person who knows how to not feel their emotions. Someone who's, and the idea of the enlightened figure in Western times is this idea that there's somehow, some way, some magical mantra, some, some insight, some sutta, some wisdom that they're not giving you, but if you only bought it for $9.99 on a Kindle and read it and, and got it right, if you only acquired it, then you too would never have to feel that pesky, unwanted emotion or impulse or feeling or loneliness or whatever it is that you have been trained to feel, to believe is, is just cannot be experienced and sat with and worked with. We all have states that we, from our childhood, wind up believing, I would be so much better if I never felt anxious, I never felt self-conscious in social groups, if I never felt anxiety, if I never felt lonely, if I never felt uh, grief, if I never felt anger, everything would just be swell. And it's not because these emotions cannot be worked with and cannot be, uh, we, we can't figure out, we can't be given a way to hold these emotions, but we deeply want there to be a way to not have to even experience that emotion at all. So we hold in our, our, our heads this hope that somewhere it's, well, St. Mark's books isn't available anymore. I used to love that site <laughs> to go in that book. But there's this book, you know, somewhere there's this book and it's hidden in the bookstore. And if I just get it out and I read page 147, there it will be the secret, that wisdom, that little piece of knowledge that will help me so that I never feel angry again. The one who knows exacerbates so many negative maladaptive coping strategies. When people feel they're in the presence of a guru or someone who knows, they perform for attention. They feel they need to get the uh, guru's attention. They'll try to really look good, so they'll, they'll, they'll literally self-sabotage. They won't even bring the issues they're struggling with. They'll conceal it because they really want to seem like they're really doing well. People come up to me all the time, and I'm not a fucking guru, by the way. I'm not enlightened. I'm just another practicing schmo <laughs> but they'll come up to me and they'll start talking to me yeah i've been meditated recently you know or i've been meditating a lot yet i'm like <laughs> whatever whatever is 
we will project onto people we believe are enlightened or awakened or the guru these qualities and the quality is kind of like this person has transcended all the emotional mood swings and anxieties that I have and they've somehow gotten somewhere over there they've crossed some mystical divide where they are in endless tranquility that's another word by the way for death if you're not feeling your emotions if you're not feeling your sadness your anxiety your losses your grief your loneliness your pain after emotional breakups if you're not feeling your life you're not living so the goal to get to some divide where there's someone who has transcended feeling emotions or feeling great sadness or anger or any kind of emotional energy is not the goal that we're aiming for it's essentially creating not only a false hope but it's a hope that you wouldn't even really want to attain even if you could because what makes your emotional what makes your life worthwhile is working through the emotional experiences processing the emotions by feeling them disclosing them to others feeling that connection by expressing emotions and bonding that way if we don't have our emotions we're not even really capable of deeply bonding with other human beings it's all just a game of ideas then but really what bonds us together are those times when we express our sadness and someone rather than telling us what to do sits with us and creates a safe container when i first went to my first 12 step group 22 years ago when i got sober uh the thing that was amazing to me was i was finally in a place where there was no experts no authority there was no psychologist no therapist there was no one who was the one who knew who had the answers it was a safe space where everybody was acknowledging their damage their emotional wounds nobody was presenting as healed fixed or cured and it was because of that that even the most traumatized the people who had been repeatedly abused repeatedly abused in their early life had enough safety that they could share their experience into the room and feel that they would be safely met and not rejected but the moment when i was in a uh, when i was in my last detox 23 years ago they brought in an expert who had not who was not an addict and nobody said a word they all sat there here's the nature of your addiction let me explain it to you and everybody's like i don't really want to say anything when you're around because all i'm going to do is experience the same emotional experiences when i try to get my sadness or anger or my needs met by my parent and i was performing people will project onto the expert the authority their same experiences their same most damaging experiences from childhood that's what the expert does it it brings us into a regressive state of need and feeling like we are once again the child that can't survive that can't you know uh that has to perform for love for this specific person noah 
who was the teacher I met 16 years ago, was the first time in my life I met a Buddhist teacher who didn't present with one of those, you know, I love them, but a lot of teachers have this really phony yoga voice. Welcome. <laughs> I'm so glad to see you. I've never experienced agitation or turmoil in my life. <laughs> oh, you're suffering? I'm so, so I'm so sorry. <laughs> Noah sat down the first time I met him, and he started talking about how angry he was. He was really angry because he had gotten into some uh, disagreement with another teacher, and he was talking about it there, right in his Dharma talk. There was absolutely no need for him to present, because he came from a 12-step background like me, there was no desire to present himself as enlightened, fixed, somehow, somehow way down the road from anyone else. He was not in a competition to prove that he was the most tranquil person in the room. He was okay with the fact that he was angry that day and he was doing exactly what we should do. He had felt his anger in the body and then he was talking about it with other people. It's about disclosing, not getting to some other shore where we have transcended our emotional experience. A teacher should never perpetuate the myth that there are some hidden truths that you need so that you can get to a place that is better than where you are or that you are missing some information that you need. My role is not to do any of that. My role is simply to model for you how I work with my emotions and some tools that I, I offer to you to try working with your feelings so that you too can create a safe container to experience your life, to not repress the emotional activations that are present, to learn to turn to your feelings and be with them rather than try to figure them out and solve them. In our culture, we set a constant example to people that when they are feeling strong affects, our role is to get rid of other people's affects. That's what we're told. For instance, when people are at memorial services because they've lost someone that they love and they're grieving. And what do other people do? They come up and they feel this impulse and it's not a mean impulse, but culturally we train people to say, oh, well, he lived a long life and he's up there looking at you somewhere and he got to travel to Paris. And the meaning of that, the unconscious meaning of it is, please don't be upset around me. I don't know how to handle strong emotions. I've been taught to give people simple little ideas in the hopes that those thoughts will get rid of their emotions. It boils down to what neuroscientists call the interpretive faculty of the left hemisphere. We live our lives emotionally in the right. We feel life, we experience it, we take in all of our experiences in the right, and then the left hemisphere's job is to interpret, figure it out, come up with a story or a meaning so that we can feel there's a way to get rid, to deal, an action we can take, something we can do to get rid of 
our emotions. And many times in life, it works. If you're hungry, your left hemisphere says, oh, I guess I should get something to eat. And it's right. Many times, if we're lonely, it tells us, okay, I guess I should jump on the phone and talk to someone. And it's, it's true. But many times, there's just no way to pin a nice idea or meaning or message. There's no truth that will make the emotions go away. When we go through a traumatic breakup, no story like, well, that'll teach me for dating, you know, I don't know what, a Canadian. No, no idea will make the grief go away. We have to feel it, be with it, nurture it, tend to it, and then over time, on its own, the emotions will slowly begin to be embodied. One of the great ironies of the, what Michael Gazzaniga, the neuroscientist, calls the interpretive mind that tries to figure out, solve, come up with an idea that will, or story, or thought that will get rid of or suppress emotional awareness is that very often the thoughts we create are far more painful than the feelings they're trying to protect us from. So when we feel fear, what happens is the left hemisphere says, oh, I don't like feeling this, I'll catastrophize and I'll just tell you about the worst things that could possibly happen or I'll worry about what could go wrong. And the worrying and the catastrophizing is actually far worse than just being with fear. When we're angry, as a way of not feeling anger, we might have resentments against people that we blame for our anger, and we might have a good reason to blame them, but when we don't feel the physical sensations of anger, when we instead listen to the resentment, the resentment doesn't stop. It keeps repeating over and over as a cyclical, self-generating it's a little bit like a Netflix movie. Some of you know those TV shows. You watch one episode, and if you don't jump up immediately at the end, it starts in three seconds. We're going to put something else on. That's the way thoughts work. You don't even know where one thought ends and the next one begins. It's just in three seconds another thought will begin about how terrible other people are, and then you just, <laughs> just stay in the same theme. The second thing is, is you, people use the word processing a life. I need to process this. And that word has a lot of misunderstanding. Or when people say that, they very often, um, they know that they need to somehow be with and work on something, but they don't really know what processing means. And what processing really means is what we did in that meditation. It means to give the emotional uh, affect oriented right hemisphere an opportunity to present all of the somatic physical and attentional experience behind it that's associated with an event in our life so if we have if somebody asks us in work do we want to take on another project or if somebody says something that's disappointing or if we go through uh, uh, an unfortunate conflict in a relationship. Processing means not figuring it out, not thinking a lot about it. Not, it means first simply being with the experience, feeling the experience on a nonverbal level, being with whatever arises, and then 
talking about it with another person for co-regulation. And in that whole process, then over time, a completely different perspective arises than if we simply try to fix and solve and immediately come up with a lesson. If we really look closely at some of the Buddha's original teachings in the Pali Canon, we find some really remarkable messages about this. And the Water Snake Sutta, the Buddha says, right view is knowing when to stop looking for right views. It's knowing when to stop clinging to views. It's knowing when we're using views to essentially do things that they can't do. He compares views to rafts that we use when they're, it's applicable. But many times, he says, our views and opinions are just baggage that gets in the way. In the Adana Sutta, in the Bodhi Suttas, the Buddha says that enlightenment is seeing what's called Paticca Samupadam, which is a, a very important teaching I'm going to give in a couple of weeks, which is essentially about the importance of feeling one's feelings and not giving in to the cognitive conceptual trying to figure out what experience means. Just be with, not figure out and solve. In the Kalama Sutta, the Buddha says, don't believe what people say, what common sense proposes, what tradition proposes, what is rumored, written down, pondered, or even taught by a teacher. So he's saying, don't believe in what a teacher says. He's saying, see for yourself, keep seeing for yourself. The, the problem with metaphysical truth claims is that they stop people from inquiring. If I say the entire point of practice is blah, 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 then you stop inquiring. You stop asking questions. And that's when you stop really opening up to the truth that's constantly unfolding. As the great teacher Stephen Batchelor points out, the word sakka in Pali, which means truth, actually doesn't mean truth as a reality statement. It means being honest. So when the Buddha talks about truth, he's simply asking us to be honest with our feelings, with what we're experiencing. He's not saying that there is some metaphysical, enlightened, transcendental truth that rises above everything else. Even the so-called so Four Noble Truths are simply verbs telling us to, when we experience suffering, rather than resist it, to explore and turn towards it and feel and be with. If the word religion implies sacred truths, then Buddhism is not a religion. I have no sacred truths that I want to unload onto you or that I'm holding up my sleeve. Buddhism, if anything, is a form of psychology that simply doesn't provide you with truths. It simply gives you tools and offers you support so that you can find your own truths that are constantly unfolding and changing. And you are never supposed to rely on anything that I say as if it is a transcendent truth claim. I encourage you to 
let it go as often as you can and see for yourself. And I encourage you to listen to as many different teachers and as many different traditions as you possibly can. Don't trust me. <laughs> After all, look at me. Come on, folks. <laughs> so, if you haven't figured it by now, I'm all the way back at the first thing I talked about, which is if you see the Buddha in the road, kill him. If you see some figure that you believe is the Buddha, if you see someone that you want to believe is enlightened, the road, by the way, being a metaphor for your path through life, your journey through your days on this planet, if you meet someone that you think is the Buddha, keep moving. Kill off the idea that that person is the Buddha. Don't believe that they have the truth. Keep searching. Never stop searching. Never stop inquiring. Never stop feeling what needs to be felt. There isn't any book that you will ever buy that has that little hidden truth that will make the pain go away. The pain doesn't go away. The pain is held and nurtured and felt and, and given a safe space to arise and pass. And that's not something that any truth claim can ever do. That's pretty much it. Maybe some stuff we could ponder through the day. Before I start the meditation, I do want to say that I'm not saying that there is not shared beliefs that we have that could that we could. There are beliefs that we have as groups that are transpersonal that we can rally around. For example, I have a belief that um, the Dakota Pipeline is a really shitty thing to do to Native Americans. And a lot of people can agree with that and we could join together and take action. But the idea that I have to turn that into a transcendent truth that I go around and bash other people with or other pe get into some kind of debate with others is, is not the core need to confront injustice. We confront injustice because of the way we perceive the world. But making truth claims is what leads to fundamentalism and leads to all kinds of people killing each other. So, let's meditate. <laughs> so finding a really super comfortable position that feels right for you and really don't try to be a meditator, just try to be yourself relaxing. The balance of keeping the body upright and not allowing your head to float or slump in front of your chest, if you have just that right amount of energy, it'll keep you awake. But it shouldn't require so much effort that it adds uh, some form of restlessness. It's about finding the right balance. 
both literal balance, like how we hold our body, whether we shift forward or backwards to left or right, and also uh, balance internally in terms of how much effort we put in. Too much effort and we, the mind just becomes jumpy and unsettled, too little effort and we generally fall asleep. So find the right amount of effort. So let's take a few breaths just to start a uh, meditation in unison. A nice full in-breath through the nose, filling up the lungs and lifting, if you like, your shoulders up like you're trying to touch your ears and you're just keeping the shoulders up there for an extended beat or two. And then breathing out through the mouth and opening up the chest by pulling the shoulders slightly back. And then the next in-breath, tightening the belly, holding the belly in and then breathing out through the mouth and softening the belly. And then for the third breath, squeezing the toes, the buttocks, the fist, and especially the muscles in the face. So you're making a really ugly pinched face that you hope nobody will see and they probably won't because they've got their eyes closed. And then you breathe out through the mouth. And now take a moment to instigate a very compassionate survey of your body and ask yourself if there's anything you can do that will make you feel more comfortable in this moment. Like if you could unfold your legs or if there's clothes that are too tight or too hot or you're too cold, anything you need to do to feel more comfortable. And I'd like you to continue with this self-care, this caring about your comfort and extend it into an intention that you set to not criticize, judge, or evaluate anything that happens in your meditation. So you might at times feel that your mind is, you wish your mind was more peaceful or more alert or more energized or less energized. But don't add any judgment. Whatever you're experiencing right now, that's the perfect place to start. And the goal we're going to do is create a safe container for you to be with this state that you are in. So you don't need to remove anything that you're feeling or any state. We're going to try to be with our experience So one way to do that is to simply keep awareness slightly larger than whatever you're experiencing by adding awareness of the sounds drifting in from the street, awareness of your body making contact with the ground, 
awareness of the area of the body where the breath is most apparent as a sensation. So the chest expanding with the in-breath and then contracting with the exhalation. The Buddha said that practice is against the stream, by which he meant that, of course, what he taught was not going to ever be the dominant path of people in the world, which is understandable because his path was so anti-materialist non-consumerist, but he also meant that the natural stream or current of the mind is to flow outwards, what he called asava, to look out in the world, to try to consume things in the world for happiness or security or peace. And so, the sabasava is the way to stop flowing out to start turning one's awareness inwards to feel and be with. If there's a part of your internal experience which is antsy or restless, rather than try to get rid of it, see if you can create a safe container around it, which means find sensations in the body above and below the restless area or the tight area that feel relaxed. Spend some time in the relaxed area and then investigate the part of the body that feels tense contracted. So if the belly feels tight or the chest or something in that region, then feel the palms of the hands which might be relaxed. Feel the legs which are relaxed, or the muscles that are not contracted, and just use those peaceful sensations as a frame to be with anything that feels contracted or difficult. If your mind clicks on one of the little movies, which we call thoughts, plans, memories, 
resentments. You can either switch off the thought and simply come back, or you can make the thought much smaller by just allowing it to be there, but bringing back awareness of all the actual present time sensations that are available. So bring back into awareness your breath, the sounds, the lights flickering behind closed eyes, the feeling of the clothes, the cushion you're sitting on.
So at this point you can allow just the mind to relax and not feel obligated to keep anything in its spotlight if you have been. And given that one theme of tonight's discussion was being with ex the emotional undertow of experience rather than figuring out, solving, trying to make sense, turning it into ideas, to just be with the raw feelings of life. I'd like you to bring to mind a recent event that was challenging, maybe a disappointment, argument, conflict, frustration, <coughs> something that you've been thinking a lot about. Your mind has been trying to solve. Or it could be not even a conflict with someone. It could just be something that you're concerned about or a big decision that you have to make that you've been trying to figure out. And just hold in your mind an image that's very associated with that topic, event, interaction, challenge. Just hold a static image, like a photo in your mind. This time adding no story, thought, opinion, view. Just be with the image that represents it. And just ask yourself, how do I feel about this? What needs to be felt? You might need to use language that's a little bit more resonant. The goal is to find the somatic emotion beneath the ideas, to feel in the body, in the breath, in the nonverbal mind. When I think about this topic or image, does my throat get tight, my muscles in my face tense? Does my breath get shallow? Does my mind become jumpy or tired? What's the experience rather than the thought? Just welcome whatever Nonverbal experience arises. Don't judge it, don't push it away, just welcome it, allow it to be there. You could even nurture it by a very simple offering, a thought such as, I care about my sadness, my suffering, I care about my disappointment, I care about my anger. Whatever you need to feel, care about it.
At first, many of us will be numb or not feel anything, and that's okay. Just be with the image and practice, not adding any story. And just see whatever sensation, no matter how subtle, or just what it's like being with that topic in mind without adding any story or thought to it. Eventually, you do it enough. The repressed, buried, challenging emotion will appear. And it presents an opportunity to be with rather than solve or fix obsessively.
So, now we're reaching the time where we're going to transition from the meditation. When you hear the sound of the bowl, open your eyes, but look at the ground in front of you and take in the re-emergence of light and color on the floor or the ground in front of you, but try not to look around the room at first. If you do, your consciousness will flood out. As the Buddha said, asava will flood out into the world, and you'll lose all awareness of your body and breath and moods and feelings. And to have a mindful life is to have a balanced life of inner and external awareness. So when you open your eyes, see if you can balance in light into a much wider, spacious awareness that's also aware of your body.